Hello. Hello. So you got your internet's working there, huh? Yeah, I got some uh, internet excitement going on here. It's been it's been quite a day for internet in North Carolina. How's it? My neck of North Carolina. <laughs> what did the uh, did somebody run a pickup truck into the 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 string between the tin cans? Yeah, yeah, something exactly. Something might have happened where. Um, the uh, yes, the the tin can string has been cut uh, by um, barbecue. Maybe it's uh, been smoked out. It, it's <laughs> it's dangerous having internet around barbecue. Oh my gosh! Is it ever? It's uh, it's why we have two different uh, health codes. Uh, <laughs> it's nice. the internet. Yeah, it's good. Whoa, call back. Up call back to the last episode. Perfect. Nice. Um, so so let me let me tell you how my my internet day started. Um, sure, so I've got. A whole bunch of new new folks starting today. Very exciting. One of your uh, graduate students is here uh, joining me for the summer, doing some some really cool work. Uh, uh, Hannah's here uh, hanging out and uh, learning how to um, track temperatures and practices with the uh, folks in the school system. And uh, uh, there, there are three others uh, that all started today. And um, two out of the four had Internet connectivity problems. And I think we solved it a little bit, but it's apparently the drain of my new folks on the internet uh, system here has uh, uh, created some excitement. So now, just just so you're um, not worried, um, I have a wireless and wired redundancy. <laughs> that's 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 good to know. And I should, while we're briefly talking about Hannah, uh, I should mention that she's from Oklahoma, so. She knows about barbecue. Now, it might not be the same as your North Carolina barbecue, but as we would say in New Jersey, she knows from barbecue. She knows from barbecue. Well, that's good. She uh, um, That hasn't come up yet. Uh, we, we really just talked about the Internet um, and connectivity. But the uh, I'm sure the barbecue discussion will come up because, you know, folks in North Carolina, uh, are, we're real serious about our barbecue. And and I think um, the the purists would look down on, um, Oklahoma barbecue is not being barbecue because it's not whole hog or pork shoulder. Because I think my my bet in Oklahoma, there's probably some beef barbecue going on. Well, so just to show you how far out of the loop New Jersey is, one of my other graduate students was telling her about w- that we were going to have a barbecue, and then we explained what was going to happen, and she says, "That's not a barbecue. That's a cookout. That's a cook. <laughs> we're cooking out. Yeah." Oh, I love I love food regional food names and how it all changes the vernacular that's that's out there it's cool it's cool stuff um, so yeah so the internet solved and, and Skype wasn't a problem today so Andreas will be happy about that because I know he's he, he likes to track when we have Skype issues in the show. <laughs> that's good so, yeah. well and and continuing on in the theme of Skype and as a follow-up to the last episode. So I now have a hardwired Ethernet connection um, on my computer here in uh, Bernadette Franco's office. Now, I have to explain, last week um, when we recorded, uh, I was told that I was not allowed to have a hardwired connection. Um, Interestingly, I, I dug a little further, and it turns out that the policy is that laptops are not allowed to have hardwired connections because – and I confirmed this with my son who's very knowledgeable about computers – that there is a limited number of IP addresses that can be assigned. And so one of the ways that they handle that is they say, okay, so – and it's more flexible with, with wireless because of some complicated stuff that I don't really understand. But so basically if they – 
they say, okay, so we'll, we'll limit uh, all these undergrads and, and students with their laptop computers. We'll limit them to only being able to connect wirelessly, and that'll let, let us have more IP addresses. But then the point was made, well, but Bernadette has a laptop, and she's used that laptop in her office with a hardwired Ethernet connection. Well, it turns out that Bernadette is what they call a very important person here at the University of Sao Paulo, and so she was able to get an exemption. And apparently, people who are visiting her who are also have laptops are also able to get exemptions. And so all it really took was talking to the IT folks several times, and then finally Bernadette talking to the IT folks saying, no, you will give him, <laughs> you will give him a working connection. And then this is what's going to happen. And, and then I had a working connection. So, uh, but anyway, so so now now the, the we should we should have even better uh, quality uh, discussions. Or better better. Well, maybe not better quality discussions. <laughs> better better acoustic quality discussions. <laughs> the uh, quality of the discussions remains to be seen. Well, the good news is that our discussions, the bar for quality is very low. <laughs> right. Not audio quality, content quality. Right. So so if we can if we could just raise it up a, a smidgen. Or a, a pinch. A pinch. Um, <laughs> a, dollop. Be, a dollop. A uh, dollop. It may be better. Hey, so I think you might have just got a little bit of feedback um, that my um, uh, I got an email message. I heard a little ding. I don't know if you heard it. Near mm. No, I did. I did not. I think I've noticed that before. Like I, sometimes I will get, I will hear noises in my headphones from my computer, but that they don't seem to show up on the recording, and you don't seem to hear them, which is generally good. Except that when one of us would want to play a video, and uh, there actually is a way to do this, and, and Dan Benjamin knows how to do it, and it's complicated and it involves wires and, and devices oh, that we probably don't have. But there, there are there are ways to do it. But anyway, we're not there yet. Um. Well, we'll someday we'll be there. Someday. Someday, someday when this is a daily show, and we have guests, when it actually someday when we are the when it's the daily show, because because Stewart's taking a break, yeah, yeah. So it's so I know that John Oliver uh, starts filling in tonight, so I'm sure it'll be good. Um, but when if he fails, I'm, I mean, you're available, right? Like when you get back from Br- from Brazil, Brazil, sure, I'm I'm ready, I'm ready. All right, well, I can Skype in for that. <laughs> John, John Oliver is hilarious. We actually saw him uh, live uh, at the Count Basie Theater in, in Red Bank. He's he's definitely a hoot. I, I'm I'm looking forward to it. I think it'll be a nice uh, nice uh, change for a short term. Um, I, I I've gotten back into the Daily Show. I, I was I was out for a while. Not like I, I would watch it, just not sort of religiously. And then the last uh, last couple of months, I've been back in. I'm all in again. Um, there's just there's too much to watch. There's there's no there's no shortage of, of good things out there. Um, well, so I just just real quick uh, little little bit of uh, comment on that. So my uh, uh, participation with the Daily Show is exactly analogous to Linda Harris's participation with this podcast. Uh, I, I T.O. it, and I never watch it. <laughs> I, I was... <laughs> <laughs> oh, so funny. That's exactly what I did for a long time. And I would not have thought about how that, that makes us Linda Harris. <laughs> but do you think... The thing is, and, and you wouldn't know since you T.O. it, do you know if 
if John Stewart mentions you every episode about how you TiVo it. <laughs> I'm pretty. Yeah. Su- I'm pretty sure he doesn't. Occasionally, you- occasionally, I will see something on Facebook or Twitter that that sends me to the the Daily Show website, and I will occasionally watch something. Or or if I see it's a person that I really want to to know, like I. So what t- what I have TiVo do is it keeps like five episodes or something. So, um, and then uh, and then I can always dip in if I if I hear that there's been a good guest or something. But I'm pretty I'm pretty sure John doesn't mention me. But again, I wouldn't know. We, yeah, exactly. You're gonna have to. You'll have to find out. Um, you, you you need a spotter. You need someone who watches it um, to see whether the, he mentions you, and then they'll tweet you. Do you? So, are you the same way with Colbert? Yeah, sadly. Are you? I just I don't have time. Apparently, the only thing that I have lately had time to to uh, consume uh, visual visual content of is uh, Adventure Time on Netflix. It's so funny that you mentioned that because I was just going to bring up Adventure Um, Not because I've watched it on Netflix because um, when I I saw Hannah this morning and I told her that you and I were going to be recording a podcast, she goes, you know, I just listened to one episode and I didn't know that Don watched Adventure Time. (laughs) But I think she called you Dr. Schaffner. I'm sure she did because that's how I train all of my students to address me. Um, so, uh, she, uh, so that, that was our, that was our conversation this morning. So I said, Oh, I'll mention that you watch it. So there I've done it. Follow up. Nice. (laughs) Nice. Oh, so, and before we leave the topic of Linda Harris, I have to say, I was amused to see, there's a barf blog post entitled poop and produce. And if you're just looking at it, like on your, on your information device and you only see the, the, or you're, you're looking at an RSS reader or something, uh, it's basically, it says poop and produce and there's a picture of Linda. (laughs) (laughs) It's... (laughs) It's true. That's in, in fact how I saw it on my iPad this morning. <laughs> and uh, anyway, I just thought that was that was funny. Not that not that Linda is poop or produce, um, but anyway. So and it was what it was was uh, was Doug talking about um, the uh, one of the two major articles that that Linda shepherded through the publication process. I, I was involved in the the other one, the one on water. But basically, this is. Um, a framework for developing research protocols for evaluating microbiological hazards and controls during production that pertain to the application of untreated soil amendments of animal origin, i.e., poop, um, on land used to grow produce. So, anyway, it's a it's a it's a it's a nice piece of work, and and I was in, involved in uh, the the meeting that 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 led to it, and, and again co-authored the other the, the the pair publication with this. So, I'm glad to see that it's finally uh, made its way through to through to through peer review and to publication. And that Linda's picture was attached to. <laughs> Absolutely, because she deserves all the credit. She does. Poop and produce. Um, so this is uh, for, for folks who listen to After Dark, and, and if we happen to leave the conversation in, uh, people will know that we um, are doing this on a short week, as they call it. Um, or a short, short schedule that, that you and I actually talked uh, and recorded a podcast last week, and we usually do this every two weeks. Uh, and now we're, uh, we're catching up uh, because we're going to both be unavailable. But the, we will space out when we release these, so it'll still look like two weeks. Too much, I know, way too much <laughs> for those who are out there. Anyway, um, what, why, why that's so important is because I don't actually have a lot of follow-up because I, I feel like I just talked to you. Um, there hasn't been a, 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 a big chunk of time. And in fact, I did just speak to you again because you and I spoke on the phone on Thursday after our recording. So it's like I've talked to you three times in a week. Tomorrow. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, yeah, it, it is interesting. And we do, I think we have kind of fallen into a rhythm where every two weeks seems about right. Like, like enough news accumulates and enough stuff accumulates that we actually have something to talk about. And so it suddenly occurred to me, so this, we're recording this on a Monday and it suddenly occurred to me yesterday that I hadn't done anything in updating our file of things to potentially talk about. But then the good news is, is that, you know, Doug is out there and you, and you as well are out there like producing stuff on Barf Blog. And I think there, there actually is a lot to talk about, even though it hasn't gone through its normal two-week gestation period. Exactly. And um, my uh, let let me tell you that I actually updated some stuff on Friday while I was sitting in the airport, um, flying back from the uh, Food Safety Preventative Controls Alliance Steering Committee meeting. Um, And I realized uh, about five minutes before uh, we started to Skype today that I had updated it in my Dropbox and had not synced Dropbox because I turned it off because I was traveling mobily and I didn't want to suck up all my uh, data. So there's stuff, there's even more stuff that you didn't even know about that I want to talk to you about. Oh, uh, but now, but see, the problem is now, did that trash the copy in the Dropbox that I updated over the weekend? See, this is what I always worry about with working from the Dropbox. Because I'm smart. I'm smart. Oh, about it. good for you. What I did was I caught that I had not updated it because I opened up the version that you had, and I was like, damn, where's the stuff I added? Yeah. I emailed myself the text from the other one and put it in. It's complicated, but no, it did not trash it. It's all working, and hopefully if you've opened it recently, you might see that I added some stuff in um, on June 7th, but uh, probably too much info for for our listeners. I sound a- well, and, and while we're and while we're diving deep into this Dropbox um, <laughs> uh, rat hole, we might as well go all the way and say that actually Dropbox does provide really good kind of behind the scenes functionality. If you if you are a Dropbox user and you tune into this show for technical support for Dropbox, I can tell you that if you ever do trash a file in a Dropbox, you can actually go back to the cloud version and it keeps saved uh, incremental versions. And so, like, if, if you had trashed it, we could have actually gone back and found all of those things and, and then cut and pasted and spliced them all together. So, again, like I said, for all the people that tune into this podcast for technical support for, for Dropbox, don't want to leave them out. Yeah, right. Uh, and just so, full disclosure, Dropbox does not sponsor us. <laughs> no, no. Oh, but by the way, as we have at the top of our show notes, if if you are listening to this and you are someone who would like to sponsor the podcast, uh, please do drop us a line. We are uh, we are seeking, not seeking, but we we would we would consider a, a sponsor if somebody so chose to want to sponsor us. Yeah, totally. We'd, we'd look at it. Who's going to turn a, a sponsor request uh, away blindly without uh, w- without reviewing? Not right. me. Not me. So, uh, so yeah. Um, and and we yeah, I think we mentioned this in the last episode. We do this because we love it, and we do it because it's fun. Um, <laughs> not because we're trying to make a boatload of money, because because that's not working. Because it's not. Yeah, it's the business. The business model is uh, is there isn't one. That's that's <laughs> the tagline. Yeah, there we go. There it is. I like that. Um, I like that. Uh, yeah. So, so let us know. Um, also just, uh, for if a sponsor happens to be someone who's a beverage company, cause we do talk about our beverages a lot. Um, I'm going to let you know what I'm drinking right now. And I almost, I, that's my ring clicking against my, uh, ceramic, um, coffee mug. I just about knocked my coffee over. Um, we were a little delayed getting our conversation started today cause I had to make a coffee with my, um, in office Tassimo, uh, coffee brewing machine. This sounds like we have a lot of sponsors today. 
uh, Dropbox, <laughs> Skype, uh, my in-office. Uh, anyway, um, and my my Tassimo brewing machine is the the most ridiculous loud machine going. Like it sounds like um, I don't know, like like a a, a very industrial um, a cappuccino or espresso maker, but it's not. It's really just makes takes pods and heats them up. Um, and I'm drinking a, a Tim Hortons coffee. Can you believe that? Not how, in Canada. How about that? It's, I'm, it's, it's phenomenal. I love uh, uh, I, I love mules that bring Tim Hortons coffee to me uh, in the U.S. because I can't get it uh, in, with these mules, meaning the um, my parents who are in the <laughs> illegal drug trade. <laughs> um, and by illegal drug trade, you mean coffee? I mean coffee. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> My parents are the Linda Harris of uh, <laughs> of coffee because they <laughs> they buy coffee and then they bring it to me to drink. They don't drink it themselves. <laughs> oh, it's going, it's going, it's devolving today, Don. This is going to be one for the uh, the record books. Yeah. So so uh, in terms of my uh, my beverages, um, I am uh, actually there, there is there is they do make uh, coffee here, uh, strong black Brazilian coffee. But there's also um, so I'm in for those again who are who are secretly stalking me. I am in building um, 14B at the University of Sao Paulo, and if I if I walk to building 19B, there's a coffee shop um, where I get a, a cafe con leche or or something like that. I again, my Portuguese is still quite uh, quite limited, um, and then uh, I drink that about half an hour before the podcast, and I took a I took a picture of it today, so maybe we'll post that on Tumblr and link to it, and then now I'm just having a delicious cold. Uh, glass of water, which I am mostly mostly finished with. So um, anyway, uh, that's our that's our beverage summary for today. What uh, just just so we can get the the sponsorship and what brand is your is your Don? <laughs> uh, so we almost had a spit take. I had a mouthful of water, and you made me laugh. Um, what brand of of what is what? It doesn't matter. It okay, doesn't matter. no, my water is comes from a blue jug. I'll take a picture of it later. Um, yeah, and I, I don't know that all of it. All I have yet to have a, a bad cup of coffee here in Brazil. Even even the instant coffee that I make in my uh, hotel room in the morning, um, which I take instant coffee and I mix it with UHT milk. Uh, most of the milk that they drink here is actually uh, UHT, so it's, so it's shelf-stable until you open it. So I have taken to just... And before before I had matches to light the gas stove in my uh, my little apartment, I would I just took take milk uh, either right out of the the UHT, you know, room temperature milk from the UHT or refrigerated UHT milk and just mix in some instant coffee, throw in some sweetener and, and mix it up. And that's actually really surprisingly, uh, surprisingly good. So, and uh, anyway, so, and then continuing on with my, my saga of, of, of life here in Brazil, you may recall uh, before last episodes, uh, last week's uh, episode, um, I forgot my computer <laughs> um, on the way here. Uh, what happened um, this time was I actually didn't forget any Anything, but I was given assurance that the the driver would be coming at eight thirty, and so uh, my alarm went off at seven, and I was relaxing in bed and didn't get up till seven thirty when the phone rang and it was the driver. He was at the hotel. So uh, anyway, I quickly put everything together, not forgetting my microphone or my 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 uh, uh, shock mount or my boom arm or my laptop. So uh, I made it here, ready to uh, ready to record with with no uh, unforeseen uh, circumstances. I want I, I want a picture of you traveling with this with your equipment bag. 
for this? The like the the boom arm it doesn't really fold up. Like, are you how how does this all work? I, I just I, I think it's it's amazing. It's awesome. It's it's that's a good question. So um, <laughs> because apparently we're not going to talk about food safety this episode. No. Um, but um, uh, so last week, what I did was I brought a. I know I got like the main trip to Brazil, and then I've got some side trips. So I packed a duffel bag with me to take some clothes. So I used the duffel bag last week to bring uh, to bring everything, um, and that was okay. But then it kind of looked like I was toting a machine gun or something around. I had this duffel bag which had this big bulky thing in it. Um, so, but what I did uh, this time was I actually just put everything in my um, my backpack, um, and, and and so you can take the if you take the boom arm and you fold it up and you sort of carefully wrap the. Uh, USB cord around it. It holds it in a closed position, and then I basically just disassemble everything. So I take the shock mount off. I take the microphone out of the shock mount. I take the um, the thing, the, the 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 table stand thing that the that the boom arm uh, uh, connects to. I take that off, and and then it, it, I've got a g- ginormous. Um, Tom, uh, while we're looking for sponsors, I've got a wonderful, uh, ginormous Tom bin, uh, bag, uh, that, that fits my laptop very comfortably and can also fit all of my podcasting gear, uh, should the need arise. Wow. That's good. And so it, and it doesn't just sort of pop out of your backpack, like, a, like it's your, like carrying a rifle in your backpack. <laughs> no, no. So that's because the, the t- that would, that would draw attention. Um, so no, the, the top of the boom arm pokes out a tiny bit, but it really, it, it actually, the backpack is enormous enough that it, that it sort of engulfs it all. And it's kind of heavy, but, uh, I didn't have to walk very far. So worked out. Okay. Well, that's cool. Good. Um, well, should we talk about food safety stuff? Well, I actually have just a, a tiny little bit of Brazil follow-up um, relating to Facebook. So, um, I so I, I I and this actually is food related. So oh, I explored uh, I explored uh, the city of Sao Paulo over the weekend, and uh, you know one of the things I like to just walk around and see stuff in a city. I don't like to do any typical touristy stuff. So, but it helps to have a. Uh, like like a destination in mind, and then and then with uh, maps on my phone, I can kind of wander my way towards my destination. So, uh, I did a little bit of research on, on Wikipedia, uh, which, as we know, is is never wrong um, about the history of Sao Paulo because I wanted to kind of get to the historic districts, the old part of Sao Paulo, and I didn't really know what part that was. So, I did some research, um, and it turns out that the the market the the uh, uh municipal market the old municipal market is is in the historic center of sao paulo and it's kind of a, a neat looking place and so what i did was i figured out where where that was and then uh figured out how to take mass transit to get there basically all you have to know in sao paulo is that no matter where you want to go it costs 320 uh three three real, reals and, and 20 cents no matter where you want to go 320 that's convenient yeah it's very convenient and i think that's also the price of the coffee that i buy from from building 19b i think so uh, anyway 320 um the, the the downside of that is i am accumulating a great deal of change um <laughs> which i need to find something to do with but anyway so 80 I, cents worth each probably. time right some, exactly yeah. exactly of course the sensible thing would be to take some of that with me and then pay the 20 but i'm not that organized i just take it out and i lay it on my dresser um <laughs> but anyway so 
Uh, the municipal market in Sao Paulo is wonderful. It is jam-packed, and I, I wish I'd taken some pictures. Unfortunately, I didn't take pictures, but it's just jam-packed with fruit stands and meat stands and you know sausage stands and fish stands and and unfortunately, it's become like many of these these markets. And you know, I'm thinking like the Pike's Place market in Seattle as, as a typical example. It's kind of become a little bit touristy, and there's a lot of restaurants and things like that. So it's not really the historical market that it once was, although there, there is still a strong uh, presence of that. But um, so I, I took a, a, the metro to a, a stop, and it turns out I could, have, I, could have taken, I could have taken one more stop, but I wanted to walk, so it was okay. So I was walking through the streets of Sao Paulo, which turns out is maybe was I could kind of tell it wasn't the greatest of neighborhoods, um, and I learned later that, in fact, it wasn't, but you know, I'm a big, tall American guy with a loud voice, and you know, I can fake a New Yorker attitude if anybody wants to, you know, hassle me. So I was ready to do that, and um, I saw this wonderful picture of this guy who had a couple of monitors that he was taking somewhere, but but the uh, the way he was taking them was he was dragging them by their. By their cords, with the screens face down, <laughs> scrubbing against the sidewalk, and so like basically I, t- taking them for a taking walk. them for a walk. Exactly. What it looked like to me, yeah, just, exactly. So, um, anyway, it was uh, uh, just uh, just a, a wonderful picture, and of course, I took a picture and then I posted it to, to Facebook, and I, I wanted to, and I can't, I I I, that, I, I, I messed up a little bit because I wanted to put a caption in, uh, and the caption read something like. I'm, uh, I've, I've acquired a couple of new monitors for the lab, <laughs> um, but the caption didn't make it in. And then, and then, so, so last night, um, I had dinner with, uh, Maria Teresa, who many, uh, listeners of the podcast will know. She r- unfortunately ran unsuccessfully against me and then against Linda Harris for IAFP officership, which is, which is terrible because she would have been a great, uh, board member, wonderful, sweet lady. And she said, you know, Don, um, you said that picture was from Sao Paulo and that's the only picture that you posted and that really is not a fair representation of the city <laughs> so <laughs> she's she's absolutely right so i quickly as soon as she said that i quickly got on facebook and i posted a couple of more really nice pictures so um after i visited the municipal market i walked back and just by coincidence i found the place where the city of sao paulo was founded and basically it was founded by a uh, an order of monks that were there to bring uh you know the christian teachings to the the local indigenous people and and essentially i think it's it, maybe it's rebuilt but it's still the original site where that where essentially where the city was founded so i had there's a really gorgeous looking building there and so i took a picture of that and then sunday i walked around and i i visited a park and uh, a park in in sao paulo because it's the tropical rainforest the park really is a rainforest with huge tall trees and just just gorgeous so uh, the ratio of flattering to unflattering pictures of Sao Paulo on my Facebook page is now two to one, and I intend to post more flattering pictures so I don't offend my my wonderful uh, Brazilian hosts who are who are just treating me fantastically. So, I uh, that that's good. I, I saw I've, I saw through those pictures, and I um, just so if you happen to see. Um, Maria Teresa, um, again, soon let her know that I didn't find that very unflattering. I thought it was quite, quite amusing and did not think that it was, uh, representing, uh, what Sao Paulo was. I thought it was, uh, like any multicultural city, um, where you see fun stuff like that all the time. Well, that's good. Yeah. She, she actually is just two offices down from me. So, uh, I see her every day, uh, when, when we're both here at work. So 
Well, cool. Um, and yeah, your pictures of the rainforest. I actually thought you had taken some like out of city trip. No, that is right. Uh, that is literally, incredible. yeah, literally 10 blocks from my hotel. Fantastic. Uh, just a wonderful park. Uh, just a great way to spend a Sunday. Oh, so cool. Good stuff. Well, all right, before we, we get back into things too much, I did. Well, I forgot when you mentioned Facebook that I had also had a, a post on Facebook um, for our food safety friends that was a uh, little bit pathogen-related. Yes, we should definitely and, cover that. And it goes a little like this. Um, so yesterday morning, Sunday morning in Raleigh, um, we, we had a nice a day planned where uh, we were going to take our boys to an IMAX movie. Uh, and then uh, go to a children's museum and then also take them to uh, – there's a, a food truck um, festival uh, that's, uh, that was running yesterday in downtown Raleigh. And so I uh, got up yesterday morning as I, as I do and, um, uh, and, and just sort of read some stuff on my iPad. And Danny uh, went down because she heard Sam uh, in his room um, just talking to himself. So she opened the door and um, – it was all very nice and relaxing until she discovered that he had taken his diaper off and smeared poo all over his bed and carpet. Um, so that was uh, a little bit of a, a, an exciting uh, turn to our morning. And and Sam's not like a, a tiny – like I hope this isn't a um, sort of a, 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 a any – um, indication of what this child's going to be like. Like if, if there's more poo smearing in our future, I guess is what, what I'm trying to say. Um, oh, you know what they he, say, Ben, once, once a poo smear, always a always, poo smear. Exactly. It's a, it's a, it's gateway artist artistry to, um, using other bodily fluids and, or something. I don't know. Um, anyway, so, so he, he was fairly content with himself that he had, um, done this and it was, it was messy. And, um, he, so he's he's two and a half, and we have fairly lucid conversations uh, with him. He's he's pretty talkative. Uh, later on uh, in the day yesterday, we weren't like you know yelling at him or anything like that. But out of, out of nowhere, he just said to me, "Daddy, I'm so sorry. I smeared poo in my carpet. I'm so sorry. Can I have a hug?" And I said, "Of Aww. course you can." Aww. He was he seemed he seemed like he was. Uh, ashamed by it, but uh, wow. uh, but I, I posted on Facebook and got uh, a variety of comments um, from folks, including one from you, which I thought was fantastic. About uh, <laughs> maybe he's a frustrated artist. Um, <laughs> you just need need to buy him some paints. The kid was that's, was crying out for a medium. That's right, exactly. And he just that was the only thing he had uh, in his hands, uh, so he, he used it. And if 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 anything, I've learned that he's resourceful. <laughs> exactly. Oh, so yeah, we had started uh, things off with uh, poop, poop hands, and smelly poop. So that was that was pretty awesome. Oh yeah. So and as a way of uh, also as a way of follow up, uh, which I have shared with you, but we have not shared with our listeners, um, is uh, that we that we have uh, we have a new listener to the podcast, or at least she's listened to one episode. Um, as she reported when I spoke to her on Saturday morning, my mom is now listening. And that fills me, fills me with uh, a little bit of dread because now I have one more thing I have to think about when I'm recording this podcast to realize that my mom may be listening. But anyway, well, that, don't don't let that uh, impede your thoughts. Don't don't let your mom listening to be be a filter. Uh, I think she'd be. I hope she'll be proud of your. Uh, your conversations that you have with me. Well, oh, she. Did. I want to share with you um, uh, that she also said that you have a lovely Canadian accent. Oh, that's 
That's also pretty sweet. Thanks. It is. Well, she's a sweet lady. She was a kindergarten teacher before she retired for many, many years. So she's got the 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 uh, uh, the, the market cornered on the sweet. Well, excellent. I, well, welcome. And your mom? What's what, what's your mom's name? Mimi. Mimi, Mimi, welcome to the to the podcast. Uh, hopefully, you're still listening to um, your son and my sweet uh, Canadian accent. <laughs> I don't. I, I that was that was good. I'm I'm really happy. I hope my I don't know if my parents listen to the podcast. I told you about my dad being on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. So, so maybe the podcast is the next thing. Um, every once in a while, when we do post this on Facebook and uh, tag each other in it, I'm sure my parents see it. Um, but maybe I don't know. Maybe I'll, 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 I'm going to see my parents next week. So maybe I'll uh, I'll let them know and see if my dad will listen or my mom will listen. Well, you know, and I think that that in in realizing that the kind of audience that we're we're trying to reach, um I just sort of assumed it would all be people who know about iTunes and know about podcasts and listen on their devices and my mom said and she no, she just listened to it on her laptop. Um, right from the link from Facebook. She saw it on Facebook and she didn't have anything else to do. So she was just sat, sat there and, you know, had some good quality time with their cat, you know, uh, lap time with the cat and, um, listen to the podcast. And so, and I think, you know, and, and also, again, we talked about uh, David Tharp, the, the executive director of IAFP. Um, he likes to listen, but again, also listens on his computer. And so I think that if we really want to reach a diverse audience, we need to be prepared to f- realize that people are going to listen in lots of different ways, including maybe via Facebook or via the website. Well, that's cool. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's always cool to hear that, that people are accessing it in, in different ways and sharing this stuff around. And, um, I did uh, see uh, our, our good friend Donna Garen uh, at a meeting that I was at last week and sat beside her because Donna and I, Donna and I, I think are bad news when we sit together, just like Donna. <laughs> yeah. Bad news yeah. See, and when the three of us sit together, look out. Holy. So, so Donna and Donna, Donna mentioned that, uh, you know, we, we had mentioned her in our previous podcast and she said she's, uh, she's still uh, listening and um, thinks that, uh, uh, some of the stuff that we talk about is interesting, and so it was, it was kind of cool to, to hear that folks like this doesn't just go into the ether; that it's uh, the people listen to it. So wait, but so, but some of the stuff we talk about is interesting. Uh, I didn't I, I didn't want to push her for that. <laughs> okay, I agree. I agree. Only some of the stuff we talk about is interesting. <laughs> it's uh, not all of it. Some of it. I mean, I, I think collectively, it's all interesting to both of us. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully it's interesting to somebody. Well, yeah, hopefully. Um, so, so yeah. Oh, <laughs> I um, just I just read comic books when you're talking. Honestly, well, it's it's all right. I'm I'm really just tweeting. It's, <laughs> it, 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 but I mean, how boring would it be if it was just one of us talking? Oh, it would be insufferable. It would, yeah, it would be awful. It'd be, uh, I don't know, it'd be like a lecture. It'd be like a TED lecture. <laughs> yeah, a bad one. Bad, a really, really bad TED lecture. I never. Have you watched a lot of TED lectures? I watch I, I watch them from time to time. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they're okay. Yeah, Mostly, yeah. I just watch Adventure Time. <laughs> I I saw this thing. I'm gonna send this link if I can find it. And I'll put it um, in the show notes right now about. Um, some like science story thing that happens in Australia that was actually really cool. That's not Ted. And it's just scientists telling stories about what they do in like a cool kind of thing. And it was awesome. Hmm. So, so we should, and actually I sent it to uh, Matt Shipman, the guy that we, you and I, we've talked about it in our, uh, um, 
new services, has written a couple of uh, articles we made reference to in, in past uh, episodes. And um, he, uh, I, I sent him a message. I was like, we should do this. It's awesome. It's just like a couple of people hanging out. Nice. It's called the Labra story. <laughs> oh, that's clever. Or I think in Australia, they probably call it Labora story. Okay. <laughs> I think so. It's, it's really good. I'll, I'll, I'll send it to you. It's, it's pretty cool. Um, so anyway, um, should we do, should we do bug news? We should do bug news. Do you have a bug you want to talk about? But you know what I have to do before we do bug news, right? Bug news intro. Yes. Bug news. Um, so I do have a, uh, a bug that I want to talk about, um, today and it is, uh, Trichinella spiralis. Would you say spiralis? That's what I would say. That's what I would say. I've heard it pronounced as um, spiralis. Mm. I go with spiralis. Mm. Um, yeah, me too. I want to talk about this one. And, and again, this bug trivia comes from our good friend, Carl Custer, who uh, has collected a lot of these stories and has shared it with us. And he's writing a book chapter um, based on some of this, uh, uh, some uh, old, not old, but the historical look at, uh, at some of these bugs and who identified them and, and where it came from. So anyway, uh, uh, Trichinella spiralis, uh, a.k.a. Trichina, uh, a.k.a. pigworms, not pig bell. Um, uh, Trichina is a nematode that forms a cyst in muscle tissue. When the cyst is eaten, the nematode emerges and finds a mate. The results are eggs hatched. And a new life cycle. The nematode was first meat it was the first meat-borne pathogen that USDA addressed. In the late 19th century, USDA had a lab where technicians examined the diaphragms of pigs destined for export to Europe. Um, and he's, he makes a note here um, about this that the nematodes, after hatching in the gut of the host, penetrate the gut wall and seek active muscles. Thus, the diaphragm hosts the highest prevalence of cysts. The tongue has the second highest prevalence. Um, and that was uh, research done by Tony Catula uh, at USDARS in Beltsville. Um, I, I, the reason there's a couple of things that, that I really kind of like about Trichinella uh, spiralis that I wanted to, to highlight here. One is um, I use this pathogen um, uh, it, a lot in my talks. Um, and it, it's probably going to surprise you on why I do this because it's not one that we see a lot of um, here in the U.S. Uh, or in, in many sort of Western um, countries, uh, it, at least when it comes to meat production. It's just not – it used to be. I mean, I, you know, go back to the early 20th century. It used to be um, much more common. And then um, animal husbandry uh, and uh, disease prevention – within especially the the pork industry or the swine industry has really limited this pathogen to like zero um, or very close to zero. And really, I think I don't, I don't have it in front of me, but I think it's like, there's not been a case in commercial pork uh, production since 1973 or 1974. So why you might ask, would I talk about it a lot? It's because why why, Ben, why would you talk about it a lot? Don, I'm so glad you asked that question. Um, the reason is because it, I think, to me, is the greatest story in public health communication. Um, and, and, and so when I – all the stuff that I try and do, I've got a couple of goals in mind. One is I want people to change what they do, and I want people to change what they do so there's less risk. And ultimately, the, the, you know, the big impact is less sick people. Well, um, the, the former – um, the, the group that existed prior to CDC coupled with USDA, um, 
told a lot of really, really gross stories about Trichinella spiralis um, in a lot of different major media outlets uh, back 100, 120 years ago. And the gross stories, I mean, um, Carl talks about it a little bit in here about how how it works, you know, how the, how the pathogen works and that it's nematodes, it's worms, and they're going to hatch in your gut and then they're going to go to different parts of your body um, that are living tissue and it's going to eat it because it likes that working muscle. And so it ends up in places um, where people may cough up worms. Uh, and that grossness, that that sort of um, surprising message or um, very uh, graphic kind of display of a consequence made it so my mom still overcooks pork. And she wasn't even alive when those messages were around, but it was passed on. You know, from my grandmother's generation, who who really learned it from her grandmother, or sorry, her, from her mother about the 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 risk of this uh, pathogen, and and really, I mean, this is stuck around on cooking pork really, really heavily, uh, or not heavily, but um, cooking it for a, a higher temperatures and or for a longer time to get these um, get these cysts uh, and these the nematodes uh, out of there because it was so graphic and it stuck around for, for so, so long. I mean, so it's, it's kind of this major public health win to me that, um, we had a, um, a, a group who recognized we don't want people getting sick from this anymore. We really need to, this is a gross story. We're going to tell this story. And, and ultimately, you know, worms are really gross and people still overcook their, their pork, even though, and you know, this is the, the part that's kind of, um, I guess, exciting is that the temperature, the endpoint temperature, recommended endpoint, safe endpoint temperature for pork dropped from 160, it was either 160 or 165, down to 145 just recently. Like, I mean, within the last three years, um, even though uh, we've had, uh, you know, almost zero um, uh, trichinella in, in, in the pork supply, just because people got kind of accustomed to it in the dogma of that, that temperature stuck around. And also I think <clears throat> Excuse me. There, there's um, a certain segment of the the population that um, that would say that it's a, you know 145 may seem a little bit un, underdone, and so there's a quality issue there. But in a science based uh, um, uh, suggestion uh, system or science based guideline system, we that 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 t- temperature changed. So I mean, I, I know this is just this is just the start. Of uh, of our trichinella discussion, but 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 for me, this is one that it is still a really relevant pathogen to tell that story around. Have you, what, have, what, you know, has it? You were around. I mean, one hundred and fifty years ago. <laughs> I'm not that much older. You, I, I think of you as like a wise old turtle. <laughs> as a... Um, <laughs> okay. Um, salmonella free turtle, I hope. Um, but, um, yeah, so, um, you know, it is an interesting story. Um, and, and it is certainly very disgusting. Uh, one of the other things too, and I, I will talk about it occasionally in my talks. One of the things that I think helped tremendously with, with control of, uh, trichina in pork was to get it out of the food supply. And so it used to be, and we used to have this actually in uh, New Jersey back before we had so many people in the state, was we used to have huge, you know, the the one of the, as disgusting it as it is, one of the useful things that pigs can do for us is they can eat 
essentially garbage. They can eat food waste um, and then turn that into muscle, um, which then we can eat. So it actually ends up being a pretty efficient way um, to, uh, to to create uh, to create meat for for human consumption. Um, and one of the things that happened to help eradicate or, or significantly reduce uh, trichina in the pork supply was the implementation of regulations that mandated that before food waste, plate waste could be fed to swine, it had to be pasteurized. And so, uh, and again, the pigs, I guess the pigs don't, don't really care. It probably, you know, does things to the, to the quality and the, and the taste. But um, so by pasteurizing it, that gets rid of any trichina cysts that would have been there. And then uh, again, eventually over time, you can, you can get that out of the, uh, out of the system. But you're right. I mean, I think for many years, Americans were taught to essentially to, I guess maybe the French would say, to overcook their pork uh, to control this disease and uh, to control this, 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 yeah, this organism. And, and in fact, it's no longer required. But I think many Americans have become accustomed to having pork well done and, and it doesn't taste right if it's, if it's, uh, if it's not, if it's not well done. So, um, and yeah, and then that whole USDA thing where they changed all those cooking temperatures, I, I'd like to think I had a little bit to do with that. I also, I served on the NACMIF committee during the the time when when NACMIP was asked to comment on on cooking times and temperatures because I think and this is again this is a common theme on this podcast and and, and a common theme and things that I talk about is, you know, why do we have all these different times and temperatures and, and are they really science-based? Are they really risk-based? And one of the things that can tell you that they're not really science-based or not really risk-based is when you start looking at these different recommendations and, and people start asking the naive but entirely appropriate question, well, why are these things, why are these things different? So, so I think it, it definitely is an interesting um, uh, organism to talk about, and while you and I might pronounce the name of the organism the same, we do differ in the pronunciation of the type of organism that it is. Uh, you say nematode, I would say nematode. Well, to, to tomato. <laughs> exactly. Right. Right. Um, well, when I when I was referring to you being old, I meant that you were around for the NACMIF discussions. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> um, and um, also, I think that we might find if we investigated further that there are some um, pig populations that that believe that the unpasteurized um, weight <laughs> they're eating uh, has a lot of essential enzymes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Hey. Uh, Nicely done. Funny joke. Funny joke. Nicely. Uh, So anyway, uh, thanks again to Carl for, uh, for providing this uh, to us and means that we get to um, uh, talk uh, a little bit about what we know about these pathogens and how we use them. Um, And uh, yeah, so I think that's, I think that's it. Um, Oh, well, actually let me, let me tell you that there's something else in here that I wanted to highlight from, from Carl and uh, just about before we leave, um, uh, Trichinella spiralis. He notes that in the early 20th century, USDA scientist Ransom conducted a series of experiments on inactivating the worm by heating, freezing, or dry curing. Thus, one of the earliest food safety prescriptions was for treating pork to inactivate any cysts embedded in the pork muscle. Um, these, those treatments, much updated, are uh, in 9 CFR 318. Uh, section C, not to be confused with Section B, um, of food safety interest is the 9 CFR 318.10B that dictates which products require trichinic treatments, and they include breaded, cured, or spiced pork products. Um, so 
you know, it, it's one just because it's been around uh, for so long and, and had a lot of trade implications. I mean, uh, really, a lot of the food safety trade um, discussions that uh, that happened today were based on some of the the treaties and the um, inspection protocols and um, the the situations around um, things like uh, trichinella uh, back uh, hundred and. 20, 130 years ago. So it's uh, historically been, it's, it's an important one for us. So, so yeah. So uh, that's it for bug news. Good. Trivia. And, and just one, one more, one more bit of follow-up. We have another uh, listener to the podcast and that is uh, John Bassett. Uh, John's a um, um, food microbiologist, microbial risk assessor, uh, formerly of Unilever. And he's now out, out there on his own and consulting. And he indicated that he'd started listening to the podcast and he left a review in, in iTunes. He thinks he left a review in the UK version of iTunes. And I had to explain to him that we have no visibility into uh, iTunes in any other country. But if we have another listener in the UK and they can go in and see uh, whether John successfully left, left a review or not. Hey, let us know. Yeah. Cause uh, we want to John honest. <laughs> well, and honestly, I just want to know if there's two listeners in the UK. Right. Right. So have you, since you're in Brazil, have you checked see is um, uh, left anything in the Brazilian version? iTunes? You know, that's a really good question. And I know, um, I know, um, my, my friend and colleague actually that I'm going to go visit tomorrow, uh, Anderson, um, Santa Ana uh, is a, uh, in fact, a listener to the podcast. He's, he's shared as such with me. Um, I have not tried to connect to iTunes here in Brazil to see what it would, uh, what it would show me. Now you, you've told me now when you go to Canada, you just load the, the iTunes app. Is that right? Yeah. I just, and, uh, find- and it, and then, and then it just shows you the uh, the the Canadian version. Uh, yes, I, that that is true. But also, what may be the case is that I have a uh, Canadian iTunes login because I lived in Canada at one time. Oh, which is different than your American iTunes login or your U.S. iTunes login. Yeah. So I actually may that might be uh, um, I'm, I may be lying to you or not lying. I might not have told you the full truth. <laughs> Damn it, Ben. <laughs> I just wasn't paying attention. Uh, so, yes, you may have to log in. You may have to actually log in to see it. So it wouldn't be just as simple as logging, uh, turning it on while in Brazil. So oh, Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just, this is fascinating. Uh, this makes for fascinating podcasting. I'm, I'm just looking at it uh, right now, and it seems to be uh, the, um, yeah, it just seems to be the American, uh, uh, the American version because I see this um, glorious maelstrom of bearded 70s rock references and science by MB Bats. That guy. That guy. So I don't, yeah, if there is a, a secret to how you look at the Brazilians' iTunes while you're in Brazil, uh, I don't know it. <laughs> oh, there's just too many jokes. I, I, let's let's move on. Let's okay, move on. let's move on. Um, so uh, I've got something that I do want to talk to you about, um, and it involves uh, something that you threw into our um, uh, notes here, uh, a post that I had that was really uh, quick last week about a medium rare burger. Sure. Yeah, I thought that that was a good, uh, uh, a good post on Barf Blog, and actually, I have I have some follow up related discussions around that as well. So, uh, but why don't you lead off? Sure. So, um, 
uh, I mentioned uh, at the start of the podcast that I've got a, um, a, a bunch of folks here uh, with me for the summer, which is really exciting. Um, I, you know, I, I, I've got right now. I have I have two graduate students and, and a couple of different um, a couple of staff members, and then I've had this influx of, of folks that are going to come work on short term projects uh, that I had written into um, you know a couple of contracts and grants on uh, bringing in a summer student to look at, at things. And one of those projects um, is related to this this whole idea of um, ordering. Burgers, uh, something that, that Doug and I have talked about for six or seven years, and, and this project is sort of finally coming to fruition. So um, we've got um, – uh, I have a graduate student who is leading this project. Her name's Ellen, and she is right now um, uh, looking at uh, a, a small – uh, subsection of restaurants in the U.S., just 40 restaurants, uh, to determine a little bit of uh, variance on uh, um, uh, answers and, well, data, I guess, uh, not answers to a questionnaire, but she's got a, an instrument that she's developed uh, that involves uh, going into a restaurant, ordering uh, burgers that are medium rare, and then having a discussion with the um, with the server uh, about what that means. Uh, and really what, what she wants to know is what kind of information is provided to a patron, to just a general patron when they order a burger, because it, in the, uh, the FDA model food code, there's, it, it does talk a little bit about serving undercooked meat products uh, in there and says, uh, the, you know, the, the guidance that's in that document that's been adopted in, in some states is the rule is if you're going to sell this, you need to disclose, first of all, that this is a raw or undercooked uh, meat product. And then you've got to remind the individuals they order it um, that that it's raw or undercooked um, with the, the, the idea that um, magically that might include a risk message sort of saying, look, um, you know, this is raw, there's risks associated with it. And, you know, as you order it, you are told that. Um, so we're, we're, I guess, kind of testing that um, here in North Carolina initially, and then we'll uh, roll it out to a much larger project across the U.S. Um, of an undetermined uh, size right now because we have to do um, some sort of some calculations to figure out what, what kind of variances we might see before we can calculate how many restaurants we go to. Anyway, um, one, another uh, uh, one of my students or not one of my students, but a student who's here for the summer is a guy, uh, uh, his name's James, and he's an undergraduate uh, student at uh, University of Wisconsin. And um, he's, uh, as part of this project, is uh, one of the, the data collectors for, for Alan, as well as he's uh, working on his own uh, small project where he's going to interact with servers at restaurants to understand what their risks, uh, what, what their um, risk knowledge is and how they value uh, food safety. And it's, and it's a group that's not, you know, to me, this is the kind of fun part about this project. It's a group that has, is not required anywhere to receive food safety training, uh, from a regulatory standpoint, some, um, food service, uh, organizations, um, or corporations will require servers to have some basic food safety knowledge. But in this case, when you go in there as a patron, you're, you're, 
buying so you're making a risk decision they're ultimately the gatekeeper for that for that decision on there they become very important as a person that says hey that's risky or that's not risky or or these are the risks associated with it whatever so james is going to um do some work with those um w- with that group and then hopefully we'll develop a a training module or something that you know some food safety info sheets or whatever that that go towards that that group but the, the the cool part is we've done a little bit of work on this is um, seeing what you know color wise obviously color is not an indicator of uh, of what temperature was but you get various like just what medium rare means from restaurant to restaurant is is cra- crazy different um, so we're um, getting a little bit of information um, on that and then also the the I guess the the cool but scary part about this project has been when you go in, we, we also order a, a well-done burger as a control um, for this. And to get the well, – in, in a couple instances, we've had folks tell our data collectors, um, you don't need to order well done. We grind it all ourselves here. Or don't – you know, ordering well done is, is really just overkill. You're going to lose the flavor of the meat. You know, you should really go with medium or medium rare uh, burger. So it's in fact like not only just like – bad risk communication, but, but a communication that, that could increase potentially risk. Now we've got some limitations in this project because we don't know what temperatures are. We we're we're really just looking at the communication side of things and we'll go further with this study as we um, get better info on what we're told. But um, it's, uh, it, it's kind of, it's been, been kind of a fun um, little project to start and, and James and Ellen are really uh, getting into things. Yeah. It's, it sounds like a, absolutely like a, a fascinating project i mean really really a clever clever idea and, and hopefully we'll we'll learn something what of course what what we really need as well is some way to instantaneously figure out what temperature that burger was in fact cooked to um but that's that's uh, way beyond the scope of even what we can accomplish with science today but but i mean i, I you know and this this issue of what does medium rare mean is one that I encounter a lot when I go to restaurants. Again, I, I order my burgers, you know, well done or, or medium well. Um, but when I order a steak, um, I will order that medium. Yeah, generally medium. But again, I always ask the question, what does medium mean here? And I get all kinds of answers, right? So I can imagine the same thing's true with uh, with respect to uh, with burgers. Well, yeah, it, it, that that's the most fascinating part of it. I think is that what what the value is of at what what mediums value at each individual restaurant, and 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 it's probably not even just like if we look at not to go all nerdy on this, but it's not just the restaurant. It's that individual server really matters because they're you know they they often become a trusted source of good information. Like, hey, is it good to eat this here or whatever. Um, and yeah, their, their thoughts on what medium are, are, are different. Um, I, I think what we're finding and I, um, I, you know, we, we talk about Doug and barf blog, uh, a lot on this podcast and, um, I, you know, I can't, this idea is not something that, um, that I sort of came up with all by myself or very much at all. I've just been running with the idea, um, from, you know, something that Doug, uh, and I had talked about and he's been. Uh, writing about and blogging about uh, this kind of stuff for um, six or seven years on uh, this idea of of communication from a server. Um, so this is it's been really fun to to like see this to to fruition, and, and we'll, hopefully this time next year we'll have a whole bunch of really cool data to to share with folks. Uh, on that post, I just wanted to mention that one of the coolest um, 
quotes or coolest comments that we that we have had on Barfblog popped up, and it was from uh, uh, you know it's not a anonymous post; it's from a guy named Jack um, Menneker, um, and he said uh, it, at culinary school we were taught to gauge doneness of beef by touching it. As a food safety consultant, I believe you're foolish if you don't use a thermometer. I just thought it was like a spot on. Actually, Doug picked up on the comment, the same thing, and he blogged about the comment. We're uh, um, not not so long after it rolled in, so it's uh, it's cool stuff. Yeah, and and in fact, uh, yeah, and there there were uh, actually a bunch of a bunch of comments on that, which is great. And I do know uh, Jack actually, and uh, Jack uh, is has a colleague in common with both you and me. Jack works for I believe it's called uh, Flying Fish Foods, and they are food service. Uh, consulting company for the airline industry, which is also where Paul Hall works. And so Paul does know Jack and, and Jack is in fact a member of the New Jersey association for food protection. So nice little, uh, connection there in the food safety community. And, and I had a a recent uh, email, um, that relates to this as well. And so I just want to give as as a little bit of a background. I think before I have talked about Marge Perry. Uh, Marge is a, a food writer, and she she writes for uh, a blog called The Sweet and Savory Life. And she is, for whatever reason, very uh, intensely curious about food safety, and also seems to be able to have a knack for drawing me into discussions about things which which go on over extended periods of time. I mean, we have long and detailed email discussions. I've also done phone interviews with her that have gone on for literally an hour or more. So uh, she's a very inquisitive person and and asks really, uh, really good questions. And so she sent me um, an email uh, last week uh, with the the subject header quickie, um, implying she had a quick question. And the quick question she had was, can you give me a a quick line or two, consumer-friendly, about why it's okay to mix yeast and warm milk and then let the dough rise at room temperature for one to two hours when normally we wouldn't dream of leaving warm milk out at room temperature for so long. And of course, I answered that. But as as always seems to be the case when I'm talking with Marge, somehow we got into the discussion of burgers. And specifically, um, she asked the question, so... um, she says, uh, I'm, what I'm asking, so we got into this discussion about cooking burgers, and her specific question was, can you quantify the risk to cooking burgers to 145? Um, and, and my question is, well, can you tell me what you mean by quantify the risk? Do you mean something like your risk of getting salmonellosis is one in a thousand if you eat a 145 degree cooked burger? And I clarified to her, and I'll clarify to you, that I am just making that number up, right? So... And right. in fact, she answered the question. I have no idea what the risk is. And so she answers, she answers and says, yes, that's, that's in fact what I meant. And my response to that is, yeah, I can do those calculations, but it's going to take a couple of hours of work <laughs> because I have to track down information on prevalence and concentration of the target pathogen. Are we talking about salmonella? Are we talking about E. coli? Um, then I have to kind of make some assumptions about what the size of the patty is, right? And then I have to figure out, okay, so how are the organisms at this prevalence and and, and concentration distributed throughout the patty? How many are going to be located at that cold point, which is going to be 145? What's the distribution at other points? If the center's at 145, what does that mean the temperature profile is, right? And then I need to essentially integrate all of that information and come up with some idea of the surviving dose of pathogen and then I need to plug that into a dose response model and figure out what the probability of illness is. So, of course, that's not what somebody wants to hear, right? 
<laughs> but but that's the only way that I know to answer that question. What's the risk of a burger cooked to 145? Um, and and I, you know, and then of course her answer answer to that is, um, uh, no, please don't do that. <laughs> stop! Stop! What you're yeah. doing? Do it. Um, um, but but on the other hand, I'm I'm really fascinated by this question. And, and the closest the closest that I came to actually ever answering that question, and it probably would be a good jumping off point to it, was in a paper um, that I published a couple of years ago, uh, uh, by Schaffner and Schaffner, a paper I published with with my wife Kristen, um, where we basically were looking at the risk of cross contamination from frozen hamburger patties to Salad. So imagine somebody is handling frozen hamburger patties and then they're immediately going from there to handling salad. Or what if they wash their hands in between? What if they used a hand sanitizer in between? And really, so it was, it was, a, it was a project done for a large uh, food service company uh, who's, who shall remain nameless. The idea is that, well, what's the risk, right? I mean, if we know that we have this practice where we handle foods in this particular way in our restaurants, we know that the, the, pro, the appropriate policy is for the company to insist that the workers wash their hands with soap and water. What would be the, the uh, consequence if they used a hand sanitizer instead? And so to come up with those calculations, I had to use information on prevalence and concentration of E. coli, a 157H7 in hamburger patties. I then had to figure out what the probability of an E. coli cell would be sitting on the surface of the patty, right? So it's kind of the opposite problem, not what's what's going on in the middle, but what's going on at the surface. And then we collected some data on, on transfer from burgers to hands for, for a non-pathogenic surrogate. We looked at the effect of sanitizer in the presence of hamburger debris on hands and all of that. But it's not it's not a trivial matter to, to calculate this. And, 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 and I suspect if we did the calculation, so what we found found with the E. coli and hamburger and hand sanitizer thing was even if you didn't use hand sanitizer at all and you just immediately went from handling frozen burgers to handling salad, the risk is astonishingly small. Like the risk of transferring even a single cell of a 157H7 from a burger to a piece of lettuce is something like one in a million. In other words, you'd have to handle a million hamburger patties and then make a million salads before you'd even see a single cell get transferred. And why is that? Well, most burgers don't contain a 157H7. If the burger contains a 157H7, it's not at the surface. And then if it is at the surface, it's not going to transfer to the hand. Then if it transfers to the hand, it's not going to transfer to the, to, to the, to the lettuce. So um, long, long digression and rant there. But um, the, the question is, you know, is anybody really interested in doing that calculation? I, I suspect if you did the calculation, again, for our, our cooking burgers to 145, what you would find is that the individual risk is probably surprisingly small. But you have to flip that around and look at it the other way. Well, okay, what if we are a food service chain um, or we are a restaurant chain or we are a restaurant? How many burgers do we serve? What's the risk in a year that will get will actually make somebody sick, and that's a very different number. Like, what's the risk to the institution versus what's the risk to the individual? Right, and you know, and from a public health standpoint, that's you know where where a lot of the um, uh, recommended you know guidance parameters are or regulations come from is is not that one event. It's these you know. You know, millions and millions of uh, of events happen all the time, and if we can 
um, reduce that one in a million times one in a million or whatever it is, um, that that's going to have a net public health uh, impact. Um, so yeah, that's it, a really interesting question. It's that's cool that um, it's it's cool that you were asked it, and I like the way that you answered it. <laughs> well, thanks. I was almost I was almost a little disappointed when she said no, don't do that because <laughs> it's like that's you know it's like oh I, I could this would really be fun like this would be so much more fun than answering emails uh, other emails or you know writing a paper or doing whatever other important thing I was supposed to be doing at the time. And all she, I mean, you could have done it. All she would have had to say was, "Yeah, okay, go ahead and do that." <laughs> um, it's, uh, uh, I yeah. I don't know what I was going to say. Hey, um, so there's something in here that I wanted to highlight for you. Sure. You, not, you, you haven't mentioned, and this was in 42 and 43, and I want to make sure that you get this sort of plug in before um, you, you go, you leave Brazil. But you, you've got something in here that says promote Brazilian workshop scholarships. Oh, yeah. So there is a, a food safety conference coming up in Brazil, and I, I thought about it, and then I, I'm, I'm – I'm, I'm afraid by the time this podcast airs, the window uh, will be closed because the application deadline is actually the 21st of June. But, but uh, again, just for so first of all, probably just props to my Brazilian colleagues for organizing this. So this is a conference on uh, predictive modeling in foods. It's going to be held this fall, and they are offering, I think it's something like 50 scholarships to students around the, the world who apply um, to basically come to this conference um, at very little cost to themselves. Um, and so it's just, it's just a one more example of how I really think that our Brazilian colleagues are really leading the way, um, in terms of, in terms of food safety. I mean, you know, they're, uh, I don't want to say they're developing countries. Certainly I, I saw as I walked around Sao Paulo that they certainly struggle with issues of, of poverty and there definitely are the haves and the have nots, but, but, as a country in terms of their commitment to food safety and their commitment to science and all of the wonderful things that they're doing. Um, it's just an, an absolutely just an outstanding group of people and they're just, they're doing, they're doing great work. So I wanted to, I definitely wanted to acknowledge that even though the, the time to promote perhaps people um, applying for this, the scholarship to come to the conferences uh, is past. Okay. Well, cool. I'm glad you mentioned it though, or I mentioned it or I prompted. Yes. You. Thank you for prompting me. <laughs> Um, hey, so uh, we, we talked a lot in the last uh, episode about mechanically tenderized beef. Yes. A lot. And turns out, since we recorded that podcast, FSIS, um, or at least USDA, sorry, USA Today announced that FSIS is planning on um, releasing a labeling rule. Uh, and I don't think it's actually out yet like to digest what this rule looks like. Um, but there was a story on um, June 6th uh, by uh, Elizabeth uh, uh, Weiss in um, USA Today talking about um, uh, how this, this rule is going to come out. Um, basically, the, it has a quote from uh, Elizabeth Hagen that says, when, um, when you buy cube steak, you see the marks where the machinery is cubed up the steak. When people buy ground beef, they know they're getting ground product. But when people order this product, uh, meaning mechanically tenderized, they don't know. And certainly when people are ordering in a restaurant, they don't know they're ordering this product. Um, she said a lot of people want a medium rare steak. If folks knew that the steak they're buying might not be what they think it is, it might be uh, in a higher risk category, they might want it well done. Um, and so um, uh, apparently the um, 
mechanically tenderized label is going to say that um, the meat should be cooked to an internal temperature of at least 145 degrees and then allowed to sit for three minutes afterwards um, to ensure that any uh, pathogens are killed. Um, so, uh, I mean, just a little bit of notable stuff since this came out since our last uh, recording that it's that it's happening. It's not just that it's set at um, um, OMB or whoever it was for such a long time. It's actually happening. Um, Doug had a, a fun couple of quotes in this uh, in this article as well, saying we can't get people to use thermometers on steaks. Why would they do it if it was needle tender? <laughs> I thought that was great. Yes, um, and. Would would anybody cook it to 145? It would turn it into a hockey puck. Why would someone pay the premium for steak or roast and then turn it into a hockey puck? Um, so not only did he get uh, a good job at thermometer use, but also hockey reference. So I'm always always happy about that. Yeah, very uh, very well done. Ha, yeah. Pun intended. Actually, very very well, very medium well. well <laughs> yeah, cool centered done. Uh, so. <laughs> It's good though. This is, I mean, I you know I talked about this in the last um, podcast. This this only takes care of some of because you know USDA's got jurisdiction over um, the federally inspected or or, uh, or contract inspection um, facilities. This isn't going to get to the blade tenderized, needle tenderized, mechanical tenderized stuff that happens at a um, at a food service outlet directly or in retail. But it's something. I mean, it's it's something that that helps. It's good. It's good um, in, information, and and it's um, uh, you know this this is this is a label that really is going to you know individually it's going to help me. It's going to mean that I will be able to choose um, at a at a store without asking you know crazy questions of the butcher uh, on whether it was uh, mechanically tenderized. But yeah. Quite a bit about some of the limitations last time. Yep, and I, and I think I think it, we can definitely say this is a, a success for the podcast. I think we we can say clearly that we caused this. We talked about it, and then there's a change. I'm going to put that in my impact statement. <laughs> you do that. Uh, yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, <laughs> clearly, clearly we did. Clearly we changed this. <laughs> hey, hey, so 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 that's a food safety success. I'd like to talk about a, a food safety failure, and this is again something also that was uh, mentioned in, in Barf Blog, and I did. It got me curious, and I, got, I did a little bit of digging and, and, and dug up some more information on it, and you know, basically through links from Barf Blog. But it's about this um, Firefly restaurant in Las Vegas. Do you want to talk about that? Let's go. Let's go. Okay. All right. So, um, so uh, there, there have been a, quite a number of, of bar blog posts, and I'll read from what I think is the most recent one. Um, it's the and, and the, the headline, the bar blog headline reads: "294 sick." Quote: We've been vilified. We certainly weren't managing our restaurants poorly. End quote. Firefly forced to cut back on staff after salmonella outbreak, and so. Um, I'm not really sure. So that's obviously the the owner of the restaurant being quoted there. I'm not really sure what he's what he's trying to say in terms of managing the restaurant poorly. Um, and, and I and the the whole the whole outbreak it has me very interested. I, I so I read the Barf blog posts. I read the uh, the the health department links. Um, so that's a first of all that is a lot of people to get sick. Okay. Now, um, one of the things that the the health department I I did after digging a little bit, I did find a a Southern Nevada health district report that gives the um, 
the case control study, which basically shows uh, the information about who ate what and, and who got sick from that. And I'm specifically looking at the May 10th report here. And w- one of the things that you, you find when you look at the, the case control study in that, um, in that document is – there's a lot of foods that are implicated in the case control study. So looking at foods that have a significant um, odds ratio, uh, this includes white sangria, Thai beef salad, crispy duck roll, petite, uh, petite filet, uh, Parmesan or Machengo cheese on, on a dish. There were, so there were 12 dishes that had this Parmesan or Machengo cheese on it, and they, they also had a high odds ratio. Fried calamari, firefly fries, Machengo mac and cheese, and chicken and chorizo stuffed mushrooms. Now, this was an interim report. There was a later report where they actually used this, this case control study uh, or this, this, this data to go out and target specific foods uh, to look for the outbreak strain. And one of the things that they – the only thing that they – so they looked at a bunch of foods and they found cooked chorizo to be positive for the outbreak strain. And from the way that I read the the reporting of this, everybody was like, okay, well, we found the outbreak strain in cooked chorizo. But to me, that doesn't explain – 294 people being sick. Now, the other possibility would have been that somebody at the restaurant got sick and then cross-contaminated a whole bunch of foods. Now, based on the uh, the epidemiological curve... There were restaurant employees that got sick, but they they weren't sick at the beginning of the curve. So it's unlikely to have been an employee that made everybody else sick. So it probably did come from a food item. But the thing the thing to me that absolutely struck home from the um uh from the 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 work the the um the the outbreak report is that there were a whole lot of really unacceptable practices in this particular restaurant, including um, poor hand washing, including not checking temperatures, including foods uh, that potentially hazardous foods or foods that require temperature control out of temperature control. They had practices of, of storing in the in their coolers. They had a practice of storing raw animal products above ready-to-eat food. So to me, the story is not that well, we found salmonella in chorizo. The story is we had a restaurant that was doing a whole lot of things really badly, and they made a whole lot of people sick. And we don't necessarily know what the cause is, but, boy, it's probably a, a bunch of these different things coming together. So I don't know. How closely have you been following this outbreak, and do you, do you have any perspective to share on that? Yeah, I've been following it pretty close. Um, I, you know, I think I've got – I'm sort of spot on with you on um, the – <laughs> the, the not being able to figure out what the um, specific factor was because there's so many different ones. I mean, just the fact that it that it was found in in what the the restaurant termed as cooked chorizo means that there's a whole bunch going on, right? Like, right? Like, like, like yeah. So um, you're bringing in chorizo from a raw source, um, and it's got salmonella in it. Um, and, uh, apparently, apparently, you know that that's. We don't. They, they from this uh, report on um, May twenty second, they weren't able to acquire any um, uh, raw chorizo. But but they took this stuff that was supposed to be cooked, um, and then uh, you know found it in there. So either 
you've got a supplier issue. You've got um, not being able to cook that chorizo to a, um, a, a safe temperature um, to reduce if there was if there was salmonella in that raw. And then yeah, like uh, just a, a staggering amount of um, uh, of illnesses uh, here. And and if you look at the um, uh, I guess it's page four of this uh, May twenty second report, um, you see that that this isn't even like. You've got quite a few confirmed cases, like you're looking at um, 73 confirmed, which is massive. Like, I mean, it's not like we've got really high probables and that the health department is um, sort of focusing on uh, a very loose definition of probable. But, man, 73, like this is one of the larger restaurant-related illnesses that or outbreaks that hasn't been um, norovirus that I've seen in a long time. Um, and so it's, it's, you know, something, something bad's going on here. And yeah, I'm, I'm with you. There's, um, there's a whole bunch of, um, uh, potentially, uh, uh, problematic, um, practices that pop up. I, I do want to highlight one thing though, that big props to, um, the Southern Nevada health district for putting these two, uh, reports out while they're doing their investigation. I mean, while uh, or or at you know at the interim and in the midst of it, because we don't see this happen a lot. I mean, it's it's only really on the ball health departments that that have the resources able to share this stuff that we're even having this conversation. Um, often there's um, you know like we've seen with uh, with, with some. Uh, other up, uh, outbreaks that are happening, you often get uh, a press conference or uh, a health department doing interviews. But, but to be able to put this in text and share this case control study, um, so so folks like us can digest it and then then learn from it um, and use it as a case study is really cool. Like, uh, it, it not it, it's it's absolutely awful that we've got 300 almost illnesses, uh, but. Just, I mean, to be able to learn from that and, and hopefully use this information so other places don't have this uh, happen in the future is uh, is trying to um, turn a, a very negative situation into a positive. So, I mean, very big ups to um, to them. Not, uh, you know, I thought that the the quote from um, the Firefly uh, um, uh, owner was was a little, you know, I guess predictable from from. Uh, you know, John Simmons and the, you know, the, the story becomes, man, we now have to let people go because we're having problems uh, with this issue. Not hot damn. There's almost 300 people that got sick from our restaurant. Um, and so the, the fact of being vilified, I think is just the missing the, the boat on, um, on, on saying, Hey, we're sorry. We had this really big outbreak and, um, doing everything that they can to, um, uh, to, to make those people that were sick have the most comfortable recovery as possible. Yeah, and, they, they weren't they weren't managing their restaurants poorly. Yeah, I'm sorry. Maybe maybe you were managing your staffing appropriately, and you didn't you didn't have too many people hired. But boy, you sure weren't managing your food safety appropriately, and that's part of managing a restaurant, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Just such a um, I don't know a d- different value system. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the thing that, the, and again, the thing why I dug into it in the first place is just the thing about the cook chorizo, chorizo just didn't make any sense to me, right? Like, it's like, well, 
it just it didn't add up. But then once I saw that, you know, I, I looked at the health department reports, and again, yeah, like as you said, huge huge uh, props to them. I mean, they learned of the outbreak on the twenty sixth. They had a report online on May tenth. I mean, that is that is like lightning fast in terms of public health reporting. And, and here it is a month after that, and you and I are sitting here talking about it, and the dust still hasn't settled yet. But but they did they did go out and, and make that stuff. The information public, and that's uh, it's just a huge help to folks like us that are trying to figure out what's going on and, and talk about it. Absolutely. Hey, so Don, I got I have a hard out today. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> I I may at some point someone may may walk into the office and say the driver is here. So, <laughs> so I should we should probably wrap this up. Okay, that's that's good. Uh, I if if we had more time, I would love to talk about uh, viruses in fruit, but I think uh, we should probably it's it's we should call it a show. We can call it a show, and we will talk about viruses and fruit because I'm sure that this outbreak that you're <laughs> will continue to be um, important weeks from now. <laughs> yeah, probably people will still be getting sick, and it'll be yeah, it's it's just a huge uh, huge outbreak, and and uh, it seems to be going on all around the world. And again, there's a lot of stuff that may or may not really add up, but there's a lot of sort of confusing stuff going on. So I think it'll be worth talking about. Absolutely. Well, um, as always, thanks again for connecting up with me getting on skype and uh sharing your time and uh and enjoy talking with you and um we'll uh we'll chat again so- sounds good ben talk to you soon bye-bye bye Cool. Sorry, I should have given you an update. I forgot. I kind of looked at the time and realized that I've got to meet somebody in five minutes. Oh, uh, no. wow. You really do have a hard out. Okay. Well, yeah, I, I figured we, I didn't have to worry about it because I moved the podcast up. <laughs> then you went and scheduled something. All right. Well, I got to run. Okay. So, and I've got show notes for this one. And I'm doing audio. And we have not, uh, have we, uh, and, uh, Andreas hasn't um, done the show notes. For no, me. he's such a slacker. We gave him a whole weekend. Yeah. Come on. He's going to hear this and he'll be like, what? So good. I want to make sure I hadn't missed it, but nope, I will. Nope. He, he has not done it and that's okay because he's, he's an unpaid volunteer. <laughs> we just thank him for any time he can give it. Exactly. It's like, we're just so indebted to him whenever he can do it. So. All right. All right. Sounds good. See you later. Talk to you in July. Bye. Bye.